I hope you know who Rodney Howard Brown is. He was one of the leading purveyors of holy laughter in the, that fad that made the rounds in the 1990s. During you know the Toronto Blessing, it was called, Rodney Howard Brown would coax charismatics to act as if they were drunk, and he claimed that this was a divine anointing, a Pentecostal blessing. In fact, he called himself, still calls himself, the Holy Ghost Bartender. That's his nickname. Now, I thought it was kind of odd and ironic for a guy who has named himself the Holy Ghost Bartender to claim that someone else is in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So I wrote an article about it. It was posted on the Grace to You blog at the time, and, and I posted an annotated video of one of Rodney Howard Brown's meetings, an event where he was telling people how to enter into the spirit of drunken laughter and, and all the other shenanigans that went with it. And he was saying, look, even if you don't feel any kind of anointing, you need to start by pretending, and then it'll come. That was sort of the the idea. And then he went on to give uh, almost an hour-long performance that was just patently ridiculous when he was he was singing and chanting and pretending to speak in tongues. It was obvious that he was faking both the laughter and the speaking in tongues because he kept repeating the same two or three nonsense syllables over and over and over and over and over and over. And because he claimed this was the work of the Holy Spirit, it, it, this was very clearly just blasphemous charlatanism. It was a video that his organization had made, and they had put it online for a while, but because people questioned it, he took it down, because it graphically made the point that he really didn't care whether the Holy Spirit was being blasphemed or not. And in fact, think about it. Charismatics who make false prophecies or encourage obscene bodily gyrations or claim that drunken behavior is a gift of the Holy Spirit, they are the ones who blaspheme the Holy Spirit in, in the most obvious and indecent ways. And, and no one has ever been more notorious for that than Rodney Howard Brown himself. So for him to decry blasphemy and pretend to know anything about the fear of God was, I thought, the very height of arrogant irony. So I posted this video and annotated it with, with little captions that said, that pointed out what he was doing at each moment in this meeting. And anyway, he was clearly embarrassed to have that video highlighting what really goes on in his meetings. And so he tried to get rid of it. He filed a copyright claim against me with YouTube. And when YouTube overruled him, he had some guy call my house. I don't know how he got my home phone number. But he called my house and, and threatened me with a lawsuit. And of course, he had no legal claim. I, I know something about copyright law because I've been in publishing for 40 years. And uh, so I basically said, bring it. And I think his own lawyers must have told him, you can never win this case because he finally dropped the issue. So that was Rodney Howard Brown. He's still angry about it. But that video is still up there. If you want to do a search for it, my YouTube site uh, is worth watching. Because seriously, if, if you think there might be something to the charismatic phenomena that people claim is the work of the Holy Spirit, watch that video and then get back to me. Now, the other major charismatic leader who began to rail against the Strange Fire book and the conference 
before it even occurred was Michael Brown. He's no relation to Rodney Howard Brown. They even spell Brown differently. But Michael Brown is somewhat more sensible and perhaps more intelligent than Rodney Howard Brown. He's certainly more subtle. But Michael Brown has himself, at one time or another, participated in or defended pretty much every weird phenomenon that uh, Rodney Howard Brown practices. Michael Brown also began his critique several months before Strange Fire was released. And by the way, if you don't know who Michael Brown is, he's, he's from a Jewish background. He was converted to Christianity. Some of his material actually is quite helpful. Uh, what he talks, when he talks about how to evangelize Jewish people, he's also got quite a bit of material arguing against the secular thrust, trying to impose acceptance of homosexuality on the truth, on the church. And when, when he's dealing with those issues, he's, he's actually quite articulate and good. But he also, he also portrays himself as an apologist for the charismatic movement. He, when he was converted out of Judaism, he was drawn at some point to the extreme side of the charismatic movement. And now he is perhaps the leading popularizer and apologist for the charismatic movement. He has a daily radio broadcast and he's all over the internet. And if you haven't seen him, you probably will one of these days. Anyway, Michael Brown was a leading figure in back in the 1990s in the so-called Pensacola outpouring, which was also known as the Brownsville Revival. That was another large movement in the 1990s. And it was the immediate successor to the Toronto blessing with a lot of the same phenomena, the drunken behavior, holy laughter, a, 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 a more fitting name for the Brownsville revival would have been the Pensacola hysteria because that's what characterized their meetings. Michael Brown and other leaders had a strange fascination with fire, which was appropriate for the strange fire conference. They would, in the 1990s, lay hands on people and shout, fire and then people would fall into all kinds of fits bodily convulsions laughter catatonic comas other weird phenomena uh the movement in fact there's a, a video somewhere from the pensacola thing of a woman speaking and she's shaking so badly she's actually speaking from the platform uh, shaking so badly it's hard to listen to what she says because of the bodily convulsions all that sort of stuff. And that movement spawned lots of false prophecies and doctrinal confusion and other questionable expressions of unbiblical and even anti-biblical charismatic fervor. The movement ended with its own leaders deeply divided. The host church in Pensacola ended up deeply in debt and multitudes who had participated in that thing were deeply confused and some of them disillusioned. Many. Uh, abandoned Christianity altogether. But to this day, Michael Brown insists that the Pensacola extravaganza was a true revival. And he, on his podcast, his radio broadcast, he, he sometimes postures as a critic of charismatic excesses. He will say generic things about charismatics who go too far, but he has steadfastly refused ever to name and condemn any of the most well-known charismatic false prophets and faith healers, uh, anybody you can name, really. And in fact, he made news just last month for his lame defense of charismatic televangelist 
who raised money to buy private airplanes, private jets. He came to their defense, and in the process, when people pressed him about Kenneth Copeland in particular, he pleaded ignorance when he was asked to critique Kenneth Copeland's relentless promotion of the false prosperity gospel. We'll talk more about the prosperity gospel in a minute, but think about it. Michael Brown has never been at a loss for words in his condemnation of John MacArthur and the Strange Fire Conference. As I said, he, he began writing criticisms of the book and the conference months before the book ever came out, before he'd read a single word of it, months before the conference occurred. He was a critic. And my initial response to those early critics, the vocal few who jumped the gun like that, was to just say, look, wait till the book comes out and the conference is over, and then let's hear your criticism of what we actually say, rather than all this speculative fear-mongering about uh, we might be blaspheming the Holy Spirit kind of stuff. And in fact, in my messages at the Strange Fire Conference, I dealt with that, that whole idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I expected that when the conference was over and the book was out, we would be dealing with written critiques and answering people's questions for the next five years. But in reality, within weeks after the conference was over, it was clear that the only pushback we received from the charismatic community was a lot of sound and fury that really didn't signify anything. The criticisms, none of the criticisms were serious attempts to answer the biblical and historical data that we cited in the conference or in the book. Charismatic apologists, for the most part, have ignored the substantive arguments that are made in the conference in the book. And there, there were some early critics who handpicked a few provocative sound bites from the conference, mostly from the Q&A sessions. So it was extemporaneous stuff that they picked out. They basically ignored the plenary sessions, and they singled out a handful of extemporaneous quips, and that's what they focused their criticisms on. Things that, like John MacArthur said at one point, there isn't, there isn't much. Charismatics don't do a lot of uh, charitable work. They don't build hospitals and that kind of thing. And, um, and they said, now that's an exaggeration. Uh, Joyce Meyer has hospitals all over India, that sort of thing. That was the kind of pushback we got, but there wasn't any substantive response that carefully and systematically dealt with the biblical arguments that were made. And even today, six years later, very few critics have addressed any of the material that was delivered in the plenary sessions at the conference. And where, for example, is the charismatic response to Conrad Mbewe's analysis of all the mischief that's being done by charismatic heretics in Africa? That was a powerful session and I've not heard a single response to it. Michael Brown, in fact, goes the opposite direction, and he cites the numeric growth of charismatic groups in Africa as, as if that were evidence that the movement is doing good work because look how many followers they're gaining. But he stubbornly ignores the criminally abusive leadership in Africa, the horrific false doctrines that are being taught, the constant twisting of biblical truth, the greed-mongering, the phony miracles, the rank superstition that actually makes most of the African varieties of charismatic influence even worse than, and this was Conrad Mbewe's point, 
it's even worse than some of the pagan animism that ruled so much of that continent in the past. Charismatic apologists turn a blind eye to all, that the, all of that chicanery while they then fulminate against anyone who tries to point it out. It's a, it's a glaring problem with their movement. An inability to accept any kind of critique or do any kind of significant self-critique while they turn their guns on anyone who says, no, let's look at what the scripture says. Meanwhile, my sessions from the conference, Justin Peters' sessions, R.C. Sproul's videotaped message, even John MacArthur's plenary sessions have not been seriously critiqued or challenged by any charismatic writer I'm aware of. And instead, all the charismatic apologists, especially the ones who made the most noise about the conference, they took the quick and dirty approach of playing these provocative sound bites and complaining mainly about the tone they thought they detected. Furthermore, I have yet to see a charismatic response to the book, Strange Fire, that honestly faces up to the epidemic of failed prophecies and fraudulent claims, phony healings, counterfeit miracles that that movement continues to spawn. And in short, the biblical and doc doctrinal arguments that we made have been ignored for the most part, and charismatic leaders continue to appeal to their own constituents' feelings. If we've motivated even the most conservative charismatics to do a better job of warning about the abuses in their movement, I honestly can't see where that's happened. Even the best charismatics out there, men whom we partner with in other contexts, I don't hear them, even now, critiquing the abuses in that movement. And they're obvious. Meanwhile, YouTube is full, still full, of embarrassing examples of charismatic chicanery that should make any reasonable charismatic blush or overturn some tables, you know, tables stacked high with charismatic snake oil. But charismatics are afraid to do that. They won't and can't critique their own movement because whatever biblical discernment they might be capable of is overthrown by this erroneous fear that they might mistakenly or unintentionally commit an unpardonable sin if they question the dreams or prophecies or outlandish claims uh, made by anyone who evokes the name of the Holy Spirit. You put the name of the Holy Spirit on it and the typical charismatic is going to say, I can't critique that because what if I'm speaking against the Holy Spirit? And what if that's the unpardonable sin? John MacArthur summed all of this up a year after the conference with an article that I think we published. Well, they published it in the seminary journal, I know. I'm not sure if we published it at the Grace to You blog, but here's what John MacArthur said a year later. He said, our critics for the most part did not even attempt to give answers grounded in solid biblical exegesis. They didn't deal with the major issues we raised. And he's right about that. That's my observation as well. And the fruit of the charismatic, the fruit of the strange fire conference has been extremely encouraging to me because virtually everywhere I've spoken or traveled to for the past six years, literally, I cannot think of a significant exception to this rule. Everywhere I have spoken, I meet former charismatics who say they have left the charismatic movement because of strange fire, either the book or the conference. 
Last year, I spoke at conferences in Finland and Ukraine dealing with the charismatic issues, wanting to duplicate some of what we did in this strange fire conference. The conference in Finland was interesting because it was a sizable crowd of people who came from all over that nation where I, I had a friend who was a missionary, spent his life as a missionary in Finland, who told me maybe a decade ago that he didn't know of any significant churches in Finland that were non-charismatic, except the liberal Lutheran ones. But now, there's large groups of people who have left the charismatic movement and are, are looking for a more biblical approach to worship. And several of them came together last year in Finland. Practically all of them told me that they had been influenced in one way or another by the book or the conference messages from Strange Fire. Last month, just last month, I was in Denmark and the Faroe Islands, same thing. The only negative feedback I ever get is from a small group of angry people online who like to take pot shots on Twitter or Facebook, and it's generally the same five or six mostly anonymous Twitter trolls. And generally, they have just one argument against strange fire, namely, they're convinced that any and all criticism against the charismatic movement is a sin against the unity of the church or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They just cannot tolerate the criticism. And conversely, the most common positive argument that they make in favor of the charismatic movement is the same appeal to numbers. Look at the number of people worldwide we're reaching. How could a movement that is bearing so much fruit be bad? Now, Jesus did instruct us to judge teachers by their fruit. In fact, here's the text, Matthew 7, 15. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. <clears throat> and let's look at this in context. Matthew 7, 15 and 16. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The next phrase, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, sometimes the false prophets will point to that exact verse and say, well, look, look at how many followers we have. Look at the large throngs of people who flock to our churches. That's our fruit. We're reaching so many people. How can you say that's bad fruit? And why aren't you able to get so many followers? But Jesus isn't suggesting here that the person who can gain the most followers is the most reliable teacher. You understand that, right? Truth is not a popularity contest. And in fact, Jesus himself chased away large crowds of half-hearted, worldly-minded followers. That's what John 6 is all about. But while you have Matthew 7 open, look at the verse immediately preceding the wolves in sheep's clothing warning, verse 14. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That's the immediately preceding verse. In other words, large crowds don't prove anything. The larger the crowd, the more carefully we ought to examine what's being taught. And look at verse 16 again, this time the whole verse. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So he's not talking about big numbers or speedy growth. 
he's talking about the quality and the nature of the fruit that's born. If you do any gardening, you know that weeds always grow faster and multiply more easily than healthy crops. Let your garden go and it'll, it'll turn to weeds. Rapid numerical growth is no proof that any religious movement is sound. When Jesus said you'll recognize false teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing by their fruits, he's admonishing us to examine their teaching, not the number of followers they accumulate. In other words, we're supposed to be like the Bereans who constantly, daily, compared even the apostles' teaching with Scripture to see if these things were so. And bad doctrine is precisely the kind of diseased fruit Jesus says proves that the whole tree is bad. When a man or a woman has a, a greedy obsession with money and makes countless false prophecies and performs phony miracles and lives a, a lifestyle that has more in common with Ahab and Jezebel than with Christ and his disciples, that is a seriously corrupt tree. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. The, the greed and the materialism that motivates so many quacks and imposters to seek prominence in the charismatic movement. It's an issue we didn't say a whole lot about in the Strange Fire Conference sessions. I think Justin Peters dealt with it and Conrad and Bayway touched on it, but for the most part, we tried to aim our critiques at the more respectable segments of the charismatic movement. But nevertheless, I think, and I've said this frequently, if you were to analyze the broad charismatic movement worldwide, you would discover that far and away the most pervasive influences, the most visible charismatic celebrities, the, the largest growth communities, are the ones that are steeped in the false promises of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Oral Roberts University was built on that damnable corruption of gospel truth. I grew up literally within walking distance of Oral Roberts University. And also in our neighborhood was Kenneth Hagin. He was the main purveyor of this whole doctrine for nearly half a century. Joel Osteen preaches it. T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Fred Price, and practically the entire clown car of TBN celebrities all have their own distinctive versions of the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity preachers discount everything Scripture says about suffering for righteousness' sake. They enthrone self as sovereign. They portray God as a cosmic genie who must act at our beck and call. In short, they have canonized greed as a virtue. Spurgeon famously referred to greed as a mongrel religion. That's a great expression, I think. It's a mongrel religion. And speaking of people who saw religion as a means of gaining material wealth, Spurgeon said this, and I'm quoting. He said, their real God is Mammon, who is as degraded a deity as the vilest pagan idol. These people who turn religion into a means of gain would sell Jesus himself for silver. Indeed, this is the sin of Judas. Spurgeon continues, Consider Judas. He is an apostle. He listens to the master's words. He preaches at the master's command. He works miracles in the master's name. He also keeps the bag and manages the finance 
for Christ's little company. And he does it so carefully and economically that what he filches for himself is not even missed. And he remains in good repute. Judas professes to serve Jesus, but all the while he's really serving himself. For secretly he abstracts from the treasury things for his own pocket. He had the bag and kept that which was put therein. <clears throat> he's quoting scripture there. And then Spurgeon says this, there are still people like that in the churches of God. They do not actually steal, but they follow Jesus for what they can make or get out of him and his disciples. The symbols of their worship are the loaf and the fish. Now, this is as degrading a form of worship as the adoration of graven images. Gain is the God of many in all congregations. They seek Jesus not because they care for his words, but because they eat of the loaves. They fear the Lord, but they serve other gods. Spurgeon actually died long before the prosperity gospel gained the kind of dominance that it enjoys today. But that that I just read to you is a dead-on description of today's prosperity teachers. And in fact, the really rank kind of charismatic greed-mongering you can watch on your television any time of day or night today was virtually unknown in Spurgeon's era. <clears throat> I think he'd be shocked by it. I know he'd be shocked by it. That kind of chicanery existed in Spurgeon's time, but it was, it was found in the secular realm among snake oil salesmen and carnival barkers and the mountebanks who, who operated traveling medicine shows. But the gospel of health and wealth today has become a massive worldwide movement and the prosperity preachers have become, hands down, the most influential voices in the charismatic movement. And you can see them, again, every day, 24-7, on religious television channels. I think we get direct TV, and there's like six or seven channels that run these things constantly. Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, and this constant parade of teachers with, with big hair and a greedy message. And some of them sit at the helm of the world's largest and best-known megachurches, people like, like Joel Osteen. I think, I think his church is reputed to be, it's certainly the biggest in America, if not the world. You have Yonggi Cho in Korea, Joseph Prince in Singapore. There was another guy in Singapore a few years ago, Kong Hee, I don't know if you heard of him, but he was another Singaporean prosperity preacher who built a massive megachurch there. It was called the City Harvest Church, still there, City Harvest Church in Singapore. It's a large high-rise building that they own. It has 16,000 members in one city, Singapore. And uh, Kong Hee was convicted and sent to prison because he used $24 million of church funds to advance his wife's secular singing career. And then he spent another another additional $26 million trying to cover it up. So he went to prison for criminal breach of trust in 2016. And the people in his church still, to this day, regard him as a martyr. Because they say, after all, he was simply practicing what prosperity teachers describe as God's plan for abundant living. They're serious about that. It sounds like a joke. But it's not a parody. As Kenneth Copeland recently said to a reporter who questioned his lifestyle, I don't know if you've seen that video, it's been floating around this whole past month. 
A lady cornered him as he was getting into uh, his, his chauffeur-driven luxury vehicle and asked him about the private planes he owns. And uh, his response included this. He said, yes, I'm a very wealthy man. Isn't that wonderful? It takes a lot of money to do what we do. <clears throat> now, it would be hard, frankly, to think of a more perverted version of the gospel than the prosperity gospel that all of these men preach. It is a perverse lie to teach that God guarantees healing, perpetual wealth, perpetual health, material wealth, financial affluence, all of those things, especially teaching that he, he gives those things to anyone who will give money to some anointed miracle merchant, because that's usually the point. But if the wealth doesn't come to you and you follow these guys, the reason you didn't get wealthy is supposed to be that because you don't have enough faith. It's your fault. You're the one at fault, not the preacher who gave you false hope to begin with. You see, the trick is you must always believe without any kind of doubt or question. And therefore, if you don't get the thing that you claimed by faith, the fault is always your own. It never seems to reflect poorly on the guy who promised that you would receive health and wealth. And now you just need to plant a new seed by sending another donation to the wealthy preacher who was promising your, your miracle in the first place. This has nothing to do with Christ. It has nothing to do with the gospel message. It is not the gospel. Those are false promises that don't pertain to the gospel in any way. The gospel Jesus preached was a message about the forgiveness of sins and the kingdom of God, eternal and spiritual matters, not worldly wealth. Earthly wealth or poverty has nothing whatsoever to do with anything Jesus ever said about the gospel, except for in one place, Matthew 19, 24, when he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because to be obsessed with earthly riches is the very antithesis of faith. To have faith is to have your heart set on heavenly things. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. If you have been raised with Christ, you should set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If your whole idea of faith is wrapped up in the notion of gaining material wealth in this life, then you're not really trusting the God of Scripture. The strongest biblical warnings against false teachers are found in Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2. Both of those passages tell us that one of the key signs of a false teacher is greed, an obsession with money and material things, a craving for worldly fame, a, a, a thirst for earthly power and popularity, a relentless covetousness for things that serve only to gratify the flesh. And by the way, that is a good way to understand the error of the prosperity preachers. What they are doing is portraying the sin of covetousness as a sacrament, a, a means of grace. They're suggesting to people that their worldly cravings are the whole basis of faith. They teach people that faith is nothing more or less than believing that God will give us whatever we want. That's their idea of faith. They use the name of Christ in order to borrow legitimacy for a false religion of pure greed. But Christ 
let's be honest, he has no real or essential place in the religion these people proclaim. John MacArthur, uh, back in the 1990s, wrote a book called Charismatic Chaos, where he has a whole chapter on the prosperity gospel. And he compares them to the pagan cargo cults that arose among some of the South Pacific Islanders after World War II. You know, these tribesmen who lived on remote islands would see planes fly over during the war and drop supplies to the troops. And when the troops moved on and the war ended, the natives developed an entire religion about the second coming of John Frum, who was uh, an imaginary deity that, who, who drops cargo from the sky because if they met uh, an American uh, military person, Normally, he would say, I'm John from Kansas. John from became their god. They believed somehow that these were magical people who could, who could solicit cargo from the sky. And so uh, they, it, was, it was fascinating. They would build uh, models of airplanes out of you know, pieces of wood and trees that they found on the island. Really life-size uh, life and... and real-looking airplanes, and that, that's what their worship focused on. The prosperity preachers have done the same thing with the God of Scripture. They have turned him into a minor deity whose only function is to drop earthly merchandise from heaven. The Apostle Peter says, the greed of false teachers is a fleshly lust that is tantamount to an appetite for fornication, which is also common, by the way, among false teachers of all kinds. Yeah. Peter says that this uncontrollable craving for material gain is one of the key ways to identify a false teacher. <clears throat> Second Peter 2.14 says they have hearts trained in greed. And then Peter quickly adds that they are accursed. So in other words, he doesn't view this as a minor character flaw that needs to be toned down or carefully managed. He says this is a damnable sin. 2 Peter chapter 2 and, and Jude, the book of Jude, which is just one chapter. These are parallel passages, very similar in content. And what amazes me when I read those passages is it's as if Peter and Jude were giving a precise description of today's charismatic religious celebrities. Everything they say is true about the televangelists. For example, the prosperity preachers often tell fantastic tales that most rational people know are simply fabricated stories and unvarnished lies. They're, this is common. Benny Hinn, for example, claims that people in his meetings have often been raised from the dead. He's made that claim repeatedly. But all of his, think about this, all of his public performances are videotaped for television, and he can't show even one example of a medically verifiable, clear-cut healing of a congenital disability, you know, where he heals someone who's truly lame or deaf or blind. He can't show a single example of that, much less can he document the resurrection of any dead people. He's lying when he says that happens all the time. At Bethel Church in Redding, California, where Bill Johnson is the lead pastor, people confuse me with him all the time, he's Bill Johnson. And he is one of the most pernicious false teachers out there today. There's a group of young people at his church who claim that they have walked on water. Teenagers and college-age kids. And even though they, they are 
teenagers with cell phones who videotape everything they do, right? They don't have any actual videos of anyone in their group walking on water, or they also claim they can walk through walls. Same church has a group of young people who call themselves the dead-raising team. The dead-raising team. They admit that they've never really raised anyone from the dead, but they still promise people that they can. They claim to have that power. They, they actually offer bereaved people to come to the funeral home and pray for the resurrection of your dead loved one. And they prey on people that way. If you ever watch the big charismatic networks that feature, you know, nonstop prosperity doctrine, if you watch that kind of television, you should stop. <clears throat> but if you do watch that stuff, you know that it's common to hear prosperity preachers and their followers berating and commanding the devil when they pray, speaking directly to Satan rather than really praying. They speak to Satan, supposedly rebuking him and giving him orders as if they were his master. But listen to what Scripture says about that kind of activity. 2 Peter 2, verse 3, Peter says, In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Verse 10, bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. But, Peter says, 2 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, even angels, though they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord, but these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. This is Peter talking. He's describing the televangelists. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. Back in verse 3, he says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their, their destruction is not asleep. There's no stronger language than that anywhere in Scripture. In other words, what Peter's saying is, these people are damning themselves. They are candidates for hell, he says. It's that bad. Peter goes on, to suggest that their punishment is as certain as the destruction of the demons themselves, angels who sinned and were cast into hell, he says, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And he also says the judgment of these false teachers will be worse than the judgment of people who perished in the time of Noah, and worse also than the punishment dealt to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how bad it is. It's because it parades as religion doesn't make it any better than the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's worse. Those are harsh words, right? But that's the Word of God, and it shows how absolutely vital it is to scrutinize what people teach. We have a solemn duty to reject false doctrine, even when it comes from within the community of professing believers. Peter was talking about the prosperity preachers of his time, men who were already in the church. Peter was not here talking about priests in the pagan temples that were everywhere in the Roman Empire. He's describing men who professed the name of Christ, who claimed to be Christians, who pretended to speak with apostolic authority. They traveled from city to city speaking in Christian gatherings. They were the first century equivalent of Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland and the whole TBN television network. The Apostle Paul describes them this way, 
1 Timothy 6, 5. He says, they are people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness as a means of gain, that is a perfect summary of the prosperity gospel. That's what it teaches. That's the gist of it. Scripture clearly says that's a false doctrine. And here is the heart of their error. It sets aside the true gospel of Christ and replaces the message of God's saving grace with an entirely different message. The true gospel is an announcement that Christ lived and died and rose again to make a perfect once-for-all atonement for sin and thereby to purchase full justification, in other words, a right standing before God for all who trust Him as Savior. That's the real gospel. Believing in Christ doesn't mean you can use Him like a genie to get whatever you say. It means surrender to His Lordship and trust in Him for the remission of sins. But listen to the prosperity preachers and you will see that they, they rarely, if ever, even mention sin and redemption. Theirs is a message of positive confession. That's their expression. Positive confession. To confess your sins would, by definition, be a negative confession. And there's simply no convenient place for that in their system. Their message is not about heaven or spiritual prosperity. It's all about worldly wealth and material prosperity here and now. In fact, remember that's Joel Osteen's book title, Your Best Life Now. And it was John MacArthur who pointed out that the only way you could possibly be living your best life now is if you are going to hell. <clears throat> and the relentless theme of prosperity preachers is money, material wealth, filthy lucre. It's, it's nothing more than blatant, self, fleshly self-indulgence masquerading as religion in the name of Christ. And according to the prosperity gospel, God is not a consuming fire and the righteous judge of all the universe. He's not a glorious and holy being of, to, who's to be feared. Prosperity doctrine portrays him as a utilitarian idol to be plied and manipulated into doing whatever we say. That is a, a false God and a false gospel in every way you can think. It's a lie and it's a gross blasphemy against the true God of Scripture who will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And furthermore, Paul was very clear in Galatians 1 about how we should respond to a different gospel like that. Galatians 1 verse 6, he says, I'm astonished, he's writing to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different one, he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the question is then, how does Paul want them to respond? How do we respond to people who distort the gospel? And Paul doesn't mince words. He says this, even if we, this is Galatians 1 verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. And in fact, Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9, Paul repeats those same instructions twice in the span of two verses, just for emphasis sake. Now think about this. It would obviously 
be wrong and uncharitable to say about any true brother and sister in Christ, let him be accursed. That's something you should never say about a true Christian. So the implication of that is that what Paul is saying is anyone who corrupts the gospel badly enough to turn it into a completely different message is not to be regarded as a true Christian. This is not genuine Christianity. If you examine a man's fruit and what you find is that he preaches a totally different message, he promises people financial prosperity and physical healing instead of redemption from sin, and he wears all the badges of wealth and celebrity, he preaches himself, not Christ Jesus as Lord, and he himself values the symbols of material wealth more than he cares about sanctification, then that's rotten fruit, and it is positively sinful to embrace someone like that as a true Christian brother. When, when something like that is going on, and supposedly Bible-believing Christians are afraid or reluctant to sound any warning against it, what, and this is, this is going on all over the world, this is what the average unbeliever sees and thinks mainstream Christianity is, what would it take to conclude that anyone is actually a wolf who has crept in to abuse the flock? If, if you don't think those are the wolves, who are the wolves? People love to quote Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. I love Paul Washer's response to that. He says, Twist not scripture, lest you be like the devil. He's right. That verse is simply telling us not to judge unfairly or unrighteously, because the next verse acknowledges that we are required at times to make judgments. And it tells us to temper our judgments with mercy and precede our judgments with self-examination. Because with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But there are many places in Scripture where we are commanded to judge. John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Make right judgments. That's a command. In other words, judge carefully. Don't be haphazard or, or biased or hypocritical in your judgments but judge righteously. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, the spiritual person judges all things. And that verse uses a verb that speaks of careful appraisal, close scrutiny, investigation with a view to a verdict, a judgment. It's healthy and beneficial and even essential to examine doctrine critically like that, to render a judgment. Those who are spiritual do that all the time, Scripture says. So the judge not command is about judging people's hearts and about drawing conclusions about their motives, things we can't see. You know, making judgments about their attitude or their thoughts and intentions. You cannot righteously judge what you can't examine or understand, what you can't see. But it is absolutely vital and, it, and, and it's a command actually to make judgments about the quality and orthodoxy of what we are being taught especially when someone seems to veer away or, or go beyond the teaching we find in Scripture, how could we be on the lookout for wolves in sheep's clothing if it were unrighteous to make any judgment at all? 
Now, we're not to condemn people as false teachers over every little theological disagreement. Baptists and Presbyterians disagree on who should be baptized and, and how baptism should be administered, but they agree on the gospel. Many evangelicals have differing views on how to interpret the prophecies about the second coming of Christ and the end of the age, but if they are true evangelicals in the historic sense, they agree on the gospel. The reason we consider Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other pseudo-Christian cults to be sub-Christian, we call them cults, outside the brotherhood of faith, the reason we deem them that way is because all of them want to redefine the gospel. They have that in common. They have different views of what the gospel is, but all of them want a different gospel than what is affirmed in Scripture. They've replaced the most essential truths of Christianity with false doctrines, with some plan of salvation or some idea of what the Christian message is about that is different from the gospel revealed in Scripture. And so they nullify the grace of God. That's what Paul said about the Judaizers' error in Galatians 2.21. They nullify the grace of God because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, he says. <clears throat> now, it would be hard to think of a, a worse or more subtle perversion of the gospel than the prosperity gospel. Prosperity preachers fit the profile of wolves perfectly, precisely. They don't overtly deny or the authority or accuracy of Scripture. They simply ignore the parts of Scripture that don't fit their theology. They don't usually disavow the deity of Christ or his death or his resurrection. They don't necessarily attack directly any of the vital truths of the gospel. They just don't preach it. They load their teaching with false promises and misdirection tortured interpretations of Scripture, fanciful doctrines that they receive through dreams and inventions of their own. And I'm convinced, frankly, that some of them simply make up stuff while they are talking with no design other than to regale their audiences with the idea that they have some kind of private connection with God. It was at one point when Benny Hinn started talking about nine persons in the Trinity. I think he made that up on the fly. I don't think he really even thought about it. And that whole movement is laden with unorthodox ideas. T.D. Jakes is a modalist. He denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Benny Hinn, again, once taught that each person of the Trinity is also a Trinity, and that's how he got nine persons. I'm told that he's recanted that teaching, but I can't find any place where he's actually clarified the point with an orthodox biblical view of the Trinity. And in short, that whole movement is full of unorthodox ideas. In the final chapter of Charismatic Chaos, John MacArthur gave a good brief overview of the many heresies that have been intertwined with the prosperity gospel from the very beginning of that movement. Its roots are in superstition and, and uh, metaphysical religions like Christian science. That's the roots of the prosperity gospel. And if the fundamental sin and the material error of the prosperity doctrine is greed, the formal error of the prosperity teachers is their own reliance on dreams and visions and words of prophecy and the Gnostic claim they make that the meaning of scripture is really a secret that only one of these unlightened gurus can unlock for you. 
That is not Christianity. True religion and undefiled is not about earthly comforts and worldly well-being. Godliness is not about material gain. That again is precisely what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you have your Bibles turned there, let's take a brief look at that passage. 1 Timothy 6. We'll start with verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, those are harsh words, frankly. None of that would be politically correct in today's evangelical movement. You, you, literally, you could not go into a meeting of the Gospel Coalition and preach like that. You could perhaps read that passage and get by with it. But if you actually did an exposition of what Paul is saying there, you'd probably get in trouble because it's just not politically correct. And in fact, I'm convinced that if the Apostle Paul were here and could say that today, he would be shamed and rebuked and relegated to the corner for saying things like that today. If anyone departs from the apostolic doctrine, the received truth of the church's confession of faith, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. That's not very tolerant. That's hardly gentle language. I mean, can't we embrace these people as true brothers and sisters, even though we don't agree with precisely everything they say? Where's the love? But it's clear, isn't it, that the Apostle Paul doesn't regard people who teach like this as true brethren. He utterly loathes and abominates the sin of imagining that godliness is a means of gain. It's a huge heresy, he says. He condemns people who peddle that doctrine. He doesn't embrace them as brethren. And he doesn't do what most evangelicals nowadays try to do. He doesn't doesn't just politely ignore them and hope that no one notices. You know, I might not agree with him, but I I don't need to say anything about it. Here's how Paul answers their lie, verses 6 through 11. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Listen, Paul there is actually echoing and explaining the words of Jesus from Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33, where Jesus said, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Not superabundant wealth, but your needs will be met. You will be clothed and you will be fed by the gracious 
hand of God who gives us sufficient for what we need. He doesn't necessarily make everybody rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich if God has given you wealth. Use it for his glory. But if you're obsessed with wealth, everything in Scripture says that's a sinful obsession. And the Apostle Paul himself gave this testimony about what true faithfulness and blessedness looks like. This is from Philippians 4, verses 11 and 12. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, I just read from three texts. All of them agree. And this is the consistent teaching of Scripture from beginning to end. God's blessing is not measurable by material prosperity. But true biblical prosperity is about spiritual health, joy in the Lord, rewards in heaven, grace in the midst of earthly sufferings. True prosperity has nothing to do with material wealth or an abundance of worldly riches. And in fact, those things can be hindrances to spiritual blessings. It's a fact, isn't it, that, the, material, that the, the, the wicked often prosper materially, while truly godly people do suffer. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13. Christ himself suffered, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, 1 Peter 2.21. And all of that flatly contradicts the message of the prosperity gospel. There's no place for those truths in their message. Now, let me sum up and we'll close, and I will let you out really early. Because I've gone on long enough. I'm tired of hearing myself. Let me sum up with this. Prosperity teachers insist that worldly wealth, physical health, material prosperity, these are the ultimate gauge of how blessed you are from God. And furthermore, they say, you yourself are the one who ultimately determines how much or how little of God's blessings you enjoy. So you can manipulate God with your words. You, can ha you have it within the power of your own heart to summon enough faith to claim whatever blessing you want. And if, therefore, if you are not materially prosperous, if you are sick, if you suffer in any way, you are the one to blame because you didn't crank up enough faith and create a better reality with a positive confession. You didn't claim your dream by faith. And that's your fault. That's what they say. But that's a lie from the pit of hell. In John MacArthur's words, the prosperity gospel is no different from the lowest human religions. It's a form of voodoo where God can be coerced, cajoled, manipulated, controlled, and exploited for the Christian's own ends. He's right. It's like voodoo. It's rooted in greed. It glorifies the sinner at the expense of Christ. It fosters unbelief and spiritual defeat rather than genuine trust in God and triumph in Christ. <clears throat> and it makes faith into a formula for manipulating God rather than a humble, repentant trust in Him, which is what true faith is. 
And in fact, the prosperity doctrine flatly contradicts everything Scripture says about faith and the promises of God. Suffering and glory, contentment and covetousness, contradicts everything Scripture says about the work of Christ and the depravity of fallen humanity as well. This is the religion of mammon worship. It's not the way of the cross. In short, it is a different gospel, a false gospel, meaning it's no gospel at all. It's a damning and damnable lie, and people who follow such a false and materialistic kind of religion are on the broad way that leads to destruction. Don't be deceived by this. Jesus said, enter at the narrow gate. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The narrow way, you know, is the way of the cross. It begins with repentance from sin. It culminates in faith in Christ alone, who by his death on the cross purchases forgiveness, and by his obedient life obtained a perfect righteousness with which he clothes us like a garment. And that is the true and eternal prosperity. It doesn't guarantee freedom from suffering in this life. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. That's Matthew 7, 14. And Jesus' very next words are, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That is the very description of the prosperity preachers. They are ravenous wolves. People driven by greed and lust and self-indulgence, they are not true ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their, their teaching is deadly to your spiritual well-being. And in the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 6.18, they do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Watch out for them, Scripture says. They cause divisions and create obstacles Contrary to the doctrine you have been taught, avoid them. Well, let's pray. Are there still donuts back there? <clears throat> if there are, enjoy, enjoy some donuts and coffee. Let's pray. Father, give us hearts of wisdom and discernment. Steep our minds in the truth of your word. Fill us with a love for the truth and and give us a corresponding hatred for every lie that twists the message of the gospel or that diminishes the glory of Christ. And may our hearts and minds and our behavior reflect a love of the things that are above, where Christ is seated at your right hand. Increase our faith. Bless us with eternal and spiritual blessings. And above all, make us more like Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.